Thank you, Sue, Hannah, and Nate. And thank you, Joel, too. You've done the sprint twice today, right? Buffer video is good sometimes, isn't it? Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Essential. If you're a guest of us, my name is Craig, and uh, I get the privilege of concluding our six-week series that we've entitled, With All Due Respect, uh, looking at the culture war that is ravaging our nation and trying to plot a course for the Christ follower uh, to follow as we go through it. In the uh, first week, Steve and I uh, team taught, and we just talked about the importance of peace, saying that what we need is peace, not peace as in the absence of conflict, but peace as in establishing the rule and reign of God in our nation, and that was Jesus' ultimate goal and his ultimate aim. In week number two, I tackled the idea of compassion, uh, pointing out that it is so easy to point fingers and to find fault, but Jesus shies away from that when it comes to helping people experience the rule of reign of God in their heart. And I just said, look, as for as long as we're in a two-party nation, red and blue, for as long as the focus is going to be on black and white, for as long as there are going to be needs-based interest groups that need to raise funds, it is going to be really easy for us to get pulled into pointing fingers and finding fault. When what we need to be doing, Jesus shows us from John 9, is actually showing compassion. And uh, then another week, we, we talked about the importance of courage. And Steve just said, look, for those of us in political office, for those of us involved in major issues of responsibility, sometimes the most courageous thing to do is to prioritize people over policy. Sometimes that can be unpopular, but that's what Jesus demonstrates. And sometimes for some of us, that is the right thing to do. That is the godly thing to do. Then uh, I also tackled the idea of humility, basically saying, look, if you truly live focusing on the war, sometimes you won't fight every battle. Jesus didn't fight every battle, but in humility, he walked away from some battles because his eyes were essentially focused on the prize, and the prize was the war on souls. And sometimes Jesus prioritized people over policy, and he did that in humility. And then last week, we focused on the idea of authority. Listen, we said, we do have a moral authority, and for us, that moral authority is the Scriptures. And invariably, in a culture war, you're going to be asked, Steve said, what is your position on this issue? And Steve encouraged us, listen, before you open your mouth, ask yourself, what kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you believe in? Do you believe in a God who delights in making dead people alive? Do you believe in a God who delights in making sinful people and clothing them in the righteousness of Christ? Before you open your mouth, he said, think about the type of God that you represent. There is an authority. That authority is God's word. But let's make sure we stand on the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that changes truly everything. Now, through this series, we've received a number of emails, been asked a number of questions, and invariably, one of the questions that I've been asked over and over again is, what about Romans chapter 1? Are you ever going to talk about Romans chapter 1 in this? Well, having journeyed through the previous five weeks, I'm going to try and do that now. Romans chapter 1 is a passage that many people in the church are turning to over and over again. And, and invariably, what they're saying is, Craig, what about calling down the wrath and the judgment of God upon the sin in our nation? You do believe that's coming, right? 
And of course, anybody who reads the Bible will realize that there is a wrath and there is a judgment day that is coming. But what I want to do today is I want to change your perspective on the way that many of us in the church read Romans chapter 1. Now, if you picked up a Bible from the racks, the text we're going to look at is in, on page 1126. And we're going to work through this text today. And what I want to encourage you to do is to change your perspective. Change the way that you read this text. For some of you, change the way you've been taught this text. For others of you, change the way that you're listening to people using this text to call down the judgment of God on this nation. Change your perspective. There's a power in a perspective change, isn't there? This week, Vipker and I went to Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. First time we've ever been to Wisconsin. They do have people in Wisconsin. I didn't think they did. And so we went there, beautiful city, beautiful place. We, we went there with about 10 other pastors from uh, the West Michigan District, one from St. Louis, and their wives came as well for a time of spiritual uh, nourishment retreat where we could be encouraged to, to uh, basically change our perspective on some of our ministries about what God was doing just through encouragement. And in the first session we were together, we were encouraged to change our perspective. And to help us do that, we said, we were told, that tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning at 10, we would be going on a helicopter ride. Well, it's like pretty cool, these pastors' gatherings, aren't they? That's Chris Conrad for you. He always does it right, the district superintendent. And so the funny thing was, Vipke, her face lit up because the previous week, we'd been having conversations with the kids. And the kids said, what are some of the things you'd like to do? And Vipke said, well, on my bucket list, I kind of said, you're not dying yet, huh? Please, don't leave me yet. Um, she, she listed the first thing out of her mouth was a helicopter ride. And uh, so she was like a little kid in a toy store when this thing came up. And, and I don't like kites. I'm not afraid of them. I just don't like them. So, honey, that's fine. I'll be the gracious husband. You sit in the front. And I close my eyes in the back, right? Um, and, and Tuesday morning, we went, we went up in the helicopter. And it was amazing to see the area where we were, Madison, from the air. It totally changes your perspective when you take a little distance, when you take a step back, when you actually try to look at the bigger picture. And folks, when you read Romans chapter 1 with the bigger picture in mind, you soon realize that people who are using this text to call down judgment on this nation don't understand what Paul is doing in this passage. Now, Romans is a, an incredible book. It's an incredible letter. It's unique for Paul because when Paul wrote letters to churches, he typically wrote them to churches he founded, he'd had a relationship with, he'd been to, but he hadn't been to Rome. Romans chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 tell us that he wanted to go to Rome, and indeed he would go to Rome, not as a free person, but as a prisoner and a slave to Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter to Rome and to the church in Rome to kind of help them navigate their way through what was happening in the center of the world. And so there's an agenda that Paul has. It begins in chapter 1 and it ends right at the end. And so what we're going to do today is I want to read this and I want to, I want to try and take three lessons that we can discern from the, this section of the text and I'm going to apply them to our context today. And I pray that what we will all do as we leave here is be committed to living out 
the words in the song that we've just sung. That we would be committed to being people who practice the kindness, the patience, and the forbearance of God because that's the way that people are brought back to Christ. So open the text with me, Romans chapter 1, and we are going to read from verse 18, and uh, then we will stop at the end of uh, the first chapter, and I'll make an observation, and then we'll go into chapter 2. So Romans chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So the wrath of God is being revealed. The key question then is how? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. Please notice that. Those people who are going to struggle with the vices that we're going to look at right now are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women who were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree and that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Hence the title today about wrath. I thought of calling this message the aftermath of wrath, but I thought that was depressing. So I'm calling it the other side of wrath because if you truly understand what Paul is saying in this text, this is what it means for us. Aspects of our culture and therefore of our culture war portray, get this, the result of wrath, not the need for it. If we truly understand what Paul has just said in this text, what Paul says is, listen, all of these things happening in Rome and throughout the Roman world are not calling for the wrath of God to fall, but are the results of the wrath of God that has already fallen. If, if that's the case, which I believe it is, then that has serious implications for the way that we live today. And Paul will get there in Romans chapter 2. 
But first, understand the extent of this. Understand how this works, okay? Basically, what Paul does is three times in this text, Paul points out that God gives people over. This is what the wrath of God is. It's God giving people over to the logical end of their sin. That's how it works its way out. So Paul says, listen, whenever our thinking becomes futile and our hearts darkened, God gives us over. He says, listen, whenever you exchange the truth of God for a lie, God gives you over. He says, whenever you reject the knowledge of God, God gives you over. God gives you over. God giving people over to the logical end of their sin is, Paul says, the expression of wrath. So when people refuse to see God, God gives them over to the logical end of their sin. They become blind to him. Those who refuse to hear the truth of God and about God, God gives them over to the logical end of their choice. They become deaf to him. And those who reject the knowledge of God are given over to the logical end of their sin. They become like God in their own eyes and start talking about their truth and your truth. Does that ring a bell? This, Paul says, is the wrath of God being poured out. It's sin which controls the, the heart and the actions of every human being unless that human being has recognized that the wrath of God has been poured out in Christ. The controlling power of sin, therefore, is annihilated for those in Christ. The difference between those in Christ and those outside of Christ is I can now say no to sin. This, this is the idea. But for those who, who live under the controlling power of sin, the wrath of God is simply taking a step back and saying, hey, see how this works out for you. Not sure? Have a look with me at John chapter 3. You're not going to see this on the screen because I want many of you with the Bible to see it in the Bible. Because this is important. Too many Christians are saying silly things when it comes to this text. John chapter 3 and verse 36. These are the words of Jesus. Now in John chapter 3, we all know verse 16, don't we? But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But the question is, what about those who don't? John 3, verse 36 says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath, what's that word? Is coming on them, is that what it says? Look at the text, folks. Remains on them. God's wrath remains on them. See, what we're seeing in the world is not something that should call the Christian to call for the wrath of God to come, but it's already a result of the wrath of God where God simply takes a step back and says, how low do you need to go before you wake up and see me? How low do you need to go before you wake up and hear me telling you this isn't going to end well? How low do you need to go? Sin is not a reason for God's wrath in that sense. 
but as the result of it. Listen to a guy called Muntz who comments on this giving over in Romans 1, and he says this, the person who knows but resists truth does not go away from the encounter morally neutral. Truth resisted hardens the heart. It makes it all the more difficult to recognize the truth the next time around. Life is not a game without consequences. By our response to God's revelation, we are determining our own destiny. By our response to God's revelation, we are determining our own destiny. Here's the application. Those believers who are looking at the lawlessness in our nation and calling for the wrath of God may have it wrong. There is a sense in which we are experiencing, what we are experiencing today is the result of wrath, not the reason for it. Still not sure? Let me give you another commentator. David Garland. His commentary on this text says this, the surprising thing about Paul's understanding of God's wrath in Romans is that the immorality and the foolishness is the punishment, not simply the cause for the punishment. See, what we need is a perspective change. And I think if, if what I'm saying is what Paul is saying, then we need to realize that God is already doing a work and maybe we're missing it. There's a theologian in Texas by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh who tells a story that most of us guys can relate to. He writes, a few years ago, my wife and I were waiting at a stoplight in our Pinto station wagon. Now, that must be way before my time, okay? I don't even know what a Pinto is, but you guys do. I take it as like a European tiny hatch type of thing, all right? He said, we were waiting alongside a Corvette. He had eight cylinders. I had four. He had a high-performance engine. I had a pathetically powerless engine. I knew full well that as soon as the light turned green, the driver of that Corvette was going to accelerate past me on the right and then cut in front of me. Guys, you can see this, right? And you can just know where he's at, right? You know what he's going to do. It happened, it happened too many times, he says, before the cars, uh, before with cars much less powerful than this one. I knew I did not stand a chance. Nevertheless, when the light changed, I put my foot to the floor and gave that Pinto all it had. <laughs> he said, I shifted like Ant Andy Grantonelli. Any of you know who that guy is? I would have said somebody like Montoya or somebody like that, I don't know. In spite of my best efforts, the Corvette eased by me effortlessly. My wife, Jeanette, knew exactly what was happening. <laughs> Turning to me, she said, you were trying to race him, weren't you? <laughs> he says, I could not deny it. And so I replied, yes. And the worst thing is, he didn't even know it. Could it be true that God may well be doing a work in this nation that is actually ridding this nation of a cultural Christianity that is anathema to the gospel, is a scandal to the gospel, allowing the darkness to seemingly prosper 
Because in the darkness of the night, the glory of Christ shines its brightest. Could it not be that those Christians calling for the wrath of God to fall have not only misunderstood Romans chapter 1, but may actually be steering influential people down a path that actually removes us from one of the greatest possibilities for awakening that this nation has seen for a long time. God is doing a work today. He never stops doing a work. And God's perspective isn't ours. And maybe we need to recognize that what is happening in our nation is not something that should call for us to, to need the wrath of God, but to realize that God's wrath is falling and that people are going to get to the point of realizing the futility of their own ways. And so many believers need a, such a perspective change when reading this passage. Some read Romans 1 and cry, God, pour out your wrath, judge sin. And to you I say, stop misreading the text. Paul says that the vices in this section are a result of wrath, not a reason for it. And when God's wrath falls, the very sins we sin judge us. That's his point. And then the next part of this is, so what? Right? If we truly are living the other side of wrath, in wrath's aftermath, the question is, what do we do? Enter Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, listen, the first thing we need to do is to recognize that commending our own righteousness leads to us strangling the hope and life of Jesus. This is Romans chapter 2. Now, you know that Romans 2 is followed by Romans 3. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we have this verse. Paul is building his case. Remember, he wants to make sure that a church that was founded, not in his own teaching, is founded on the right teaching. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, Jew and Gentile. Everyone has sinned. He's going to build his case. And part of his case is basically to say, look, yeah, I understand that you want to look out of the world and the Roman world and in this, in this city and see all the depravity and point your finger, but just be careful. Learn the lessons of my own people. This is Romans chapter 2. Have a look at Romans 2 with me. We'll just read a few verses from verse 1 through the end of verse 4. You, therefore, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, the interpretation here, some people say, well, these were duplicitous people who were calling out the sin of other people and doing exactly the same thing behind closed doors. Look, the, the church is sadly not exempt from people like that. I was made aware of that even this week. Someone sent me an article on one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, and said, what do you make of this? I love Karl Barth. I love the way he writes his lofty thoughts, but I love what he's trying to grapple with. He's trying to grapple, as a German theologian, trying to grapple with the reality of what German Christians allowed simply because it seemed right in their own experience. And so he writes this theology basically saying, listen, no matter how powerful your own experience is, 
Don't use your own experience and your own subjective experience to, to kind of get you out of what is true. I, I love this. I love the way he wrote. Until now it comes out that Karl Barth was involved in an adulterous relationship over a long period of time with his own assistant. In fact, the letters show that Bart even wanted his assistant to move into his house with him. And in these letters that have come to light, Bart, writing to the woman that he was having an affair with, used his own theology to justify his own sin. Oh, we're good like that, aren't we? And so there are people like that, even people we admire, people we respect. They can be saying one thing in public, and then suddenly God has a habit, doesn't he, a way of bringing these things to light. And so it is true that we can look at this and we can say, hey, those people pointing the finger at someone else and doing the same thing, hey, Paul's about to say, there is no excuse for you. But that's really not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is the act of judgment is the issue. He's basically leading up to the point that every one of us has sinned. And if any one of us looks at the actions of someone else and considers us, therefore, to be more righteous because we don't do them, you are without excuse because you have not understood the gospel at all. So let's read the rest. Verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So whenever, whenever you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? And the answer to that is, of course I won't. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? In Romans 2, what Paul is doing is he is opposing an overconfidence in God's favor because this overconfidence in God's favor suppresses the truth. It leaves those considering themselves safe and saved to also be without excuse. Overconfidence in God's favor. That's what Paul is doing here. He's attacking them. Paul's point here is, listen, human effort, no matter how godly the intent is, cannot save us from the penalty of sin. He's using the example of the Jews and says, look, you, you self-righteous Jews, you stand there looking down at other people. Do you not know your own story? Do you not realize it was not your own works that brought you out of exile in Babylon? Do you realize that it was not your own works that brought you out of exile in Assyria? It was the loving, compassionate kindness of God. No, he says, your human effort cannot save you. Human effort can't save us from sin. And Paul wants the self-righteous, those who think they are safe, to realize that they're saved because of God's loving kindness. A couple of scriptures, Zephaniah chapter 1, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them, on, save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. That's what God's wrath can do. And they were saved, not because of their money, but because of God's compassion. 
Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. He's talking about those of us in Christ. Again, Hosea 11.9, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against the cities. You see, God's wrath is averted not because of human effort, but because of his loving kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Paul builds to this in Romans 3. In Romans 5, he actually expounds this a little bit more. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you're getting the point. In this sense, salvation is being set free from the controlling power of sin that will lead us to sin's inevitable end, which is death. God's wrath allows sin to take its course. It is God handing us over to the logical end of any sin that we pursue. And the logical sin that many religious people pursue is self-righteous piety. And the end of self-righteous piety is the same as anybody seeking any other sinful end. Here's the application. Far too many religious people make the mistake of thinking that they are better than other people because they don't do what sinners do. They hear of prostitutes and they think that they're closer to God than the prostitute because the religious don't sell their body. But what essentially that says is that if the prostitute stops selling her body, she'll become, what, more righteous? That's not true. A prostitute doesn't become righteous because she ceases to prostitute herself any more than a person becomes righteous by never prostituting themselves. It is this idea that we are more righteous or better than someone else because we don't do something that is the problem that Paul is trying to tackle. He basically says, you don't understand the gospel and you are so far from the truth. You see, in this passage, Paul isn't thinking about the flagrantly duplicitous, those religious hypocrites that you and I may know, those who praise God in church yet beat their wives at home, those who proclaim love for all people but credit are predators even of their own kids. Those who proclaim the truth in the, in the church yet cheat and steal at work. You see, Paul is not condemning the duplicitous, but the self-righteous. He's addressing the self-righteous way that self-seeking religious people act on. That's what they do. He's thinking of those whose concern is so much for their own moral standing and their own purity that their pursuit of it is actually strangling the truth and the love of God in the process. Commentator says this. It is psychologically true that people tend to criticize in others those negative traits of which they themselves are guilty. Psychologists call this projection. Nothing blinds a person more than the certainty that only others are guilty of moral faults. In that regard, 
the self-consciously righteous a disobedient to Romans 1, 18, 2. Because self-righteousness is an act of godlessness. But in the church, it's often ignored. The self-righteous Jews to whom Paul is writing are guilty of justifying injustice because their righteousness is located in a sense of duty to their religion that they believe brings them salvation. But, warns Paul, the only experience that God will give them is an experience of the divine wrath against their sin on the day of judgment. That's where the wrath of God is a future item. It's on the self-righteous, not on the lost. The lost are already experiencing the wrath of God, and they will experience that on the day of judgment too. But for us, if we're content in anything and proud in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ in which we boast, then we haven't understood the gospel at all. And Paul says, you are without excuse too. See, in Romans 1 and 2, we do read of two wraths, one that is presently being outworked and one that is reserved. And again, Paul seems to copy Jesus in reserving his harshest words for the religious people who think they're better than others. And again, it's the same thing. This idea that you point at someone else, you just remember, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. You're exactly the same. Human effort does not avert the wrath of God. Jesus does. So let me wrap, kind of summarize this and bring it to a close. The division in our nation, I believe, may well be a result of wrath, not a reason for it. Because this is what happens when God hands people over. Wrath is the logical end of our sin. If we neglect God, God says, hey, see how this is working out for you. See how you get on. Secondly, in response to this, let's just recognize that as Christians, we are to avoid in an age where depravity seems to increase. We are to avoid making our own moral purity the basis for what we do. Christians are to avoid being consumed by their own moral standing and purity because this is what happens. It strangles the truth and the love of God. If that's the case then, here's the question, how do we live? How do we truly engage in this nation? If we see a nation moving away from the foundations upon which it was built, if we see people talking about truth and post-truth and your truth and my truth, how are we to live? Well, firstly, we're supposed to avoid being preoccupied preoccupied with their own self-righteousness as if that's God's scale. No, that's not the scale. Jesus is the scale. But then how practically do we work this out? And what Paul says is simple. Listen, this is how we work this out. Do for others what God has done for you. That's it. You want to live right in an unrighteous world, do for other people what God has done for you. The key text with this is verse 4. Paul asked the question, expecting a positive answer. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The answer is, yeah, you do. You do that when you're focused on your own self-righteousness. Basically, what Paul says is, listen, in a day of depravity, in an age when Rome is so far off the charts in going so far away from what God wants. Avoid trying to 
make your own righteousness the way you live, and just start to do for others what God has done for you. What has God done for you? I'll tell you what he's done. He has been rich in his kindness, in his forbearance. That basically means delaying judgment on you and putting it on Jesus. And in his patience. That's how God has treated you. And since that is the case, Paul says, listen, show other people that. Now this word richly is a favorite word of Paul. He uses it to describe the quality of God's gifts. See, God hasn't just been kind to us. He hasn't just been long-suffering with us. He hasn't just been patient with us. He's been lavishly kind. He has been lavishly patient. Oh, and he has been lavishly forbearing too. That's our God. So the real challenge, I think, in this nation for the church is to recognize that how we make the most of this opportunity. Because whether we like it or not, God is still in control of this nation. He's still on the throne. Nothing has changed. Everything is working towards his end game. And his end game is the return of Jesus Christ. He's got this. Well, if we really believe that, and if we really believe we're living in that aftermath of wrath, where the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus Christ, and now as a result of that, some people just need to see the logical end of their own choices. How are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live by being kind. Not just kind, lavishly kind. We're supposed to live by being patient. And not just patient, lavishly patient. And we're supposed to be forbearing, withholding judgment. (laughs) And not just forbearing, lavishly forbearing. Now this is such an important concept to Paul that he writes this in Romans 11, 22. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. That's the tension, right? God is loving and he's also holy. Consider these two truths. Because we walk between these two truths. Religious people tend to focus on the sternness of God. Consider these things, he says. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. And here we have the condition. Provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, and Catholics in here will love this, seems to be a cardinal sin, right? Otherwise, you will also be cut off. I like texts like that. In Holland, you reform people can do what you want with that text. (laughs) But you're getting the point. It seems to be a cardinal sin. Forgive, or you won't be forgiven. Be kind, or you'll be cut off. Seems to be a cardinal sin. Now, I don't believe that's what... God is saying what Paul means, but what Paul means is, listen, in an age of depravity, it is the kindness, the patience, the forbearance of the saint that will be used by God to lead people to repentance, not their judgment. So the real question is, how kind are you? You thinking of those people that you're butting heads with over real important issues? How kind are you? Lavishly kind? Thinking about those people you're butting heads with, how patient are you? 
lavishly patient? And what about the judgment part of it? How forbearing are you? If it doesn't come out of your mouth, even in your heart, lavishly forbearing? For it is the kindness, the forbearance, the patience of God that brought you to repentance. Paul says, this is love. While we were still sinners, still, the Christ died for us. Lest we forget that, Paul says, listen, practice this kind of kindness. Because it truly does change lives. I was reminded of that just this week, and I finished with this story. As we were away this week, there was a businessman by the name of Dave Geary. He owns the Princeton Clubs in Madison area, and I think around the country. God has blessed him incredibly, generous man. And he told a story about the start of a new company that he is um, just involved in called Salt Co. Salt Co. sounds like salt company. That's not the meaning of it. But it basically is a company that is changing the way that salt is put into our brain tanks at home. Any of you got salt tanks at home? Any of you? How many of you don't know what I'm talking about here? One lady came up to me and said, what's a salt tank? Okay, well, sometimes in some, parts of the, in some parts of this area where you have well water, okay, where the water is hard, you actually have a tank that you put salt in there. If you go to Menards or anywhere else, you see these bags of salt there that actually soften and clean your water, okay? And what you have to do is connect it to your water pump, okay, your water tank, and then it basically pulls in the amount of salt to clean the water so you can actually have clean water. Some of us filter after the fact with the pure things or the Brita filters, right, or in our refrigerator. But for many people, especially in the rural areas, this filling of a salt tank is something that they have to do. I've never had to do it until I live in the house I live in now. And like I say, I hate this thing. I hate this thing. Just on Saturday, okay, I had to go to the builder's merchants, okay, to buy bags of this salt. So you'd see the salt on the shelf, right? They're like in 50, whatever the weight of the bag is. You take the bags off the shelf. It's like nine or ten a time. Put them onto your trolley. Go to the checkout. Take them from the, the check on the trolley into your car. You drive home. You take them out of your car. You load them on the floor. Okay, then you have to open all the doors and you have to carry these bags of salt all the way down to where the thing. Any of you with me and hating these things? It's awful. Absolutely awful. Well, this company, Solco, is revolutionizing this by designing a system which actually has pipes in and out that actually allow a truck to come in, pump the salt from above ground into your tank, measuring, uh, basically they've kind of created a little sensor that measures the amount of salt in there, is able to differentiate between the salt level and the water level that's in your tank, because you need a little bit like that, and it revolutionizes it. I looked at Dave and said, Dave, if you need to test out in Michigan, I'm it. Just bring it on. Absolutely awesome. But here's the point with this. Dave shared the story, and it's a great illustration of the power of kindness. He said that one time, God laid in his heart a man by the name of Ken. Ken has a contract, a construction company. He was building three hotels, basically, and it was a, it was a difficult experience. These guys were robbing him blind, and Ken thought he was going to lose everything. He was at the point of feeling suicidal. No way out. No way out at all. And God laid Ken's heart on Dave, like Ken's name on Dave's heart. And so they called him and said, Ken, how are you doing? 
And Ken said, I'm not doing too well. And so they met up for lunch. And Dave just recognized right then, this is not good. This guy, I, who knows what he will do. And so Dave said to Ken, um, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you and your wife to, to come over uh, for dinner uh, sometime and, uh, you know, have dinner with me and my wife. And he went home, Dave, to his wife and said, honey, this could be an expensive dinner because I've got a feeling that God's laid something on Ken's heart that we need to finance. So it may cost us $100,000 to do this thing. That's the way God's blessed him, right? They come around for dinner and basically what happens is Ken has got this idea that he'd been in building work for, for such a long time in construction that this way of people transporting salt just seems to be a stupid idea. A stupid way of doing it. We can do this so differently, he said, if we would only pump it in. So Dave says, you know what, that's a great idea. Dave said, I, I didn't know anything about this thing. I just want to encourage the guy. Wanted to be kind, show him that there, were, there was possibility here, that life hadn't ended. There was hope. And the way that God had blessed me to do it, Dave said, was just basically through investing in this man. So I was willing to do that. It turned out that this was a genius idea. And just last week, there were representatives from 38 states that were in Madison looking at the demonstration of this system that is now already working, delivering two and a half million, I believe, pounds of salt into the Madison area just through this system. But where did all this begin? It began by God laying the name of a person who was struggling, who saw no hope, who only saw the darkness of this world and how evil people were and thought there was no way out. And just through being obedient to the leading of the Spirit on this name, what has happened right now is not only has Ken got a hope and a future, but people are finding employment. People like you and me will not have to worry about our backs when we carry 50-pound bags of salt. All of this happened because of one simple act of kindness. Church, kindness is the most powerful thing in the world when the world seems dark and hopeless. And so, look, as you navigate your way through this culture war, with all due respect, stop calling down judgment and start living the other side of wrath. Be lavishly kind, lavishly patient, and lavishly forbearing in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. I want to end today by praying a prayer that was written quite a while ago by a monk. And it was actually written for the continent of Europe. And this, for obvious reasons, has really impacted me as a European. And what I've done is I've, I've simply changed some of the wording. And I want to pray this prayer for ourselves and for our nation. And I pray that in this difficult season, that God would do a work as we become the hands and feet of Jesus to the people we meet. Join me as we go to God in prayer. Let's pray. This is the prayer of Cardinal Maria Martini. Father of mankind, Lord of history, watch over America to whom you have sent philosophers, legislators, wise people, and forerunners in faith of your son, who has died and risen again. Watch over these peoples 
who've been evangelized by prophets, by the monks, by the saints. Watch over these regions, watered by the blood of martyrs and touched by the voice of reformers. Watch over the peoples united by so many ties, but also divided over time by hatred and war. Help us working for an America of the Spirit, founded not only on a constitution, economic agreements, but also on human and eternal values. An America capable of ethnic and ecumenical reconciliations, ready to welcome the stranger, respectful of each person's dignity. Grant that we assume our duty with hope to inspire and promote an understanding among peoples which ensures in all the continents justice and bread, freedom and peace. And Father, to that prayer, I pray that we would clothe ourselves as a people with peace, with compassion, with courage, with humility, standing on the authority not only of your word, but on the power of the resurrection. And when, Father, the darkness seems overwhelming, may we never lose sight of the fact that the light of the gospel is brighter still. And may we as your people leave this place today and wherever you send us, in school or in college, at home, at work, to our neighbors, as we walk or even as we wait, may we be lavishly kind, lavishly patient to all whom we encounter. And may, Father, in those moments where we attempted to judge, may we also be lavishly forbearing, remembering, and being grateful for the fact that your judgment has been placed on your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the life that he has given to us. And as we live this life, may we live it to the full in the sure hope and the knowledge that one day your son, Jesus Christ, will come again and all things will change. But until that time, may we be faithful and may we represent your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. God's people said, amen. amen.